happy Thanksgiving, everybody. For those of you that spend time with your family, I, I hope it's great. For the rest of you that don't, I hope you have other plans that are just as fulfilling. I myself don't hang out with my family during the holidays. I actually try to avoid them. Uh, since I've met my wife, her family is very kind and loving and supportive of her and mostly prefer to hang out with her family on the holidays. Also, on the last episode, I made the grave mistake of talking about things that make me happy. And I mentioned like getting a job and buying a house. And I don't even know really why I said those things because those things don't really make me happy. Being with my wife, that's all I really kind of need in life. Just her companionship and being around what we consider our children, our dogs. So this week's episode is going to be why some of us don't associate with our family, why some of us might not have the same holidays that others will have. And to kick things off, I would like to share the quote, blood is thicker than water. And the actual saying is, the bond between comrades is stronger even than your family's allegiance. Or the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And it actually means that blood shed on a battlefield bonds soldiers more strongly than simple genetics. Or in today's world, experience and sharing in life means more than somebody's blood relation to you. The first story is from Tessie, and the second one is from Nicole. Tessie had a long falling out with her mother, and she finally realized that she needs to set up some boundaries, and when that didn't work, finally walk away from the situation. Hey, Justin, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you fine. Okay, awesome. (laughs) So you don't like your family either. (laughs) I know, great, isn't it? (laughs) Everyone just looks at me like I'm nuts when I don't have nice things to say about my family. So Yeah, I get that too, a lot. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate when other people have a strong family, a strong family bond, or and get along with their family, but it, it always makes me feel a little alienated when uh, they look at me as if I'm the uh, outcast in the situation, right? Yeah, and I feel like there's a judgment there, even if they don't say it, like you can kind of see it on their face. What's wrong with you or what's wrong with your family that, you know, it's just not working out like everybody else's does. I think it's uh, some throwback to like some fifties American culture or something that you're supposed to get along with your family. You think it's a cultural thing? I think it is. I mean, everyone says that America is like built on like the nuclear family and all of that. So I mean, you see that everywhere, though. And I I can't tell you how many times I've heard blood is thicker than water when trying to convince me that I should keep ties with all of my family or that I should fix things with certain people because they gave birth to you. So what, when you say fix things, what, where, where did it all go wrong for you? Cause I'm, I'm trying to pinpoint where it all went wrong for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it really built up over time. So if you want, I can just go ahead and like lay everything out. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> okay. 
my dad and my birth mother got married in October 1987. And then I was born in December 1988. And they were married until I was five years old. And they got a divorce then. And um, my sisters were born um, May 1994. So I think that they started the divorce around that time. My dad started dating my stepmom when I was around six years old. And the first time I met her, <laughs> it was so weird um, because I didn't have any warning. And uh, my dad was living after the divorce. Um, they, my, my dad and my birth mother sold their house. And my dad was living in this apartment. And my mom was um, living kind of out in a rural part of um, North Carolina. My dad, I was visiting for the weekend, and because he had weekend visitation at that point, and my birth mom had just kind of like almost full-time custody except for certain weekends and certain holidays, I think. My dad had brought me to his apartment for the weekend visit. I was kind of trailing behind him, and I remember closing the door, and he sat down on the couch, and I saw something out of the corner of my eye there was a woman sitting at the dining room table and she was reading this big college book and had her feet like on one of the chairs. And so she looked super relaxed. And um, so I turned to my dad and I said, daddy, who is that? Who's that woman? And um, he said, why don't you go and ask her? I walked over there and I could like feel my heart pounding so hard and because I was nervous and I wasn't sure why and so I walked up to her and I said hi and she said hey there and which is a word like a phrase that I use often now and I said I'm Tessie it's nice to meet you <laughs> and we kind of laughed and then after that I, I don't remember what happened but I just remember looking at her and be like wow she's so cool and relaxed and she's reading this big college book and all of that and so um, my birth mom at that point she was living in a kind of a rural part of North Carolina like I mentioned and we lived in a trailer with this guy I won't say his name um, they they didn't end up like working out so she had met someone else and moved in with him. After that, we went to live with um, this this other man with her. And uh, I remember that I really hated him. I did not like him. And I did not like the fact that eventually they, they got married and all of that. Don't think I spoke to him for the first two years that we lived there. Did your mother ever ask you if you wanted to move, if you liked any of these boyfriends or husbands or anything? Did she ever get your input? Not at that point. So, I mean, we were still really young, but there was, I don't remember any asking or like telling, like things just kind of happened. And that kind of like continued on for a really long time. So I lived with my mother and um, her husband and my sisters as well, until um, the summer that I was in third grade. One night while on a weekend visit with my dad and uh, my stepmom, um, my stepmom and my dad kind of sat me down at the dining room table and they told me that my mom was sick, but not like in a physical way, that she was sick like in a mental way. She had gone to a 
hospital. And later I found out that it was a one of those like psychiatric kind of hospitals. I, I think she had checked herself into that from now on that me and my sisters would be living with them. It was kind of something that I had always wanted anyway. I remember when I would be coming back from a weekend visit um, and being dropped off at my birth mom's house again, that I would just scream and cry and just like make a big fuss. And I had to like hug my dad like a certain amount of times, or I just kind of like hold on to the car, the car's or the seat or like the hood of the car and like it was just kind of like a really traumatic like experience you know every two weeks and I I can't even imagine what my birth mother was thinking through all of this so do you you know uh, what she was admitted for like what her mental illness was I know later on like going through documents that I know that she had major depression but I don't think that they call it that anymore I think I'm kind of remembering like bipolar disorder. I don't have a lot of memories of her getting you ready for school and things like that. Like I remember that her husband would kind of get us ready for school and make us dinner. She would sleep a lot, like a lot. Uh, You know, I'd come home from school and she'd be sleeping or she would tell me, you know, mommy's tired, like I need to take a nap. And obviously that's, you know, can be a symptom of depression going through those documents that she abused prescription medication at the time she was working as like a nurse's assistant or a nurse's aide or something like that. And she did have access to the medications that they used for their patients and that she was abusing those. Um, and that probably played into like all the sleeping and being locked in her room as well. So, so she's an absentee mother pretty much to you and she's dating guys that you don't like. Now this, this guy that she marries, you don't speak to him for two years? You don't interact with him? Yeah, I, I don't remember. Besides just the very basic, I just don't remember talking to him at all. I remember in third grade, and this is like a very vivid memory for some reason for me, um, that one day he was out in his shop. I went up to him, and I think I asked a question, and then we just started having an actual conversation. I mean, as best that a kid can have, I guess. So you kind of just despised him by default. It really had nothing to do with anything he did to you specifically. It was just your mother's choice and enforcing this situation on you. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that's just how I like kind of dealt with all the changes at the time. It just turned out that I didn't really talk to him until, you know, this one day, two years later of like living with him. I mean, obviously your mom probably wasn't very supportive of you, but was there things that you wanted to do that you couldn't do because she wasn't there for you? Or did she tell you no, or that wasn't worth your time? Or um, So she was really manipulative, even at that age. And there was always like some kind of guilt trip about visiting your dad or try and convince me that my stepmom was like a bad person. It was really confusing as a kid because you go over to your dad's place and everything's fine. It's healthy. No one's sleeping all day. And there's like healthy food in the house. And you you don't have to watch after your sisters because the two people that you're with are like being adults and, you know, responsible adults. Then when I'd get back to my birth mom's house, I would kind of be looking after my sisters and taking care of my mom even, you know, at 
such a young age, like she, she'd be in bed and she was just could not get out of bed. So I kind of found myself like taking care of her even when we didn't live there anymore after fourth grade. The weekends would, I feel like, just be taking care of her and getting her things. It even came down to, I remember one time that she was going to go take a nap. She asked me to check on her to see if she was still breathing. What a thing to ask your daughter. How old were you at this time? At that time, I must have been seven, eight, maybe nine years old. And I remember just checking on her and watching that she was breathing. But I just didn't know why. But it felt scary and wrong. Like something, like I, I couldn't figure out what it was. I have a niece who had a similar situation. I have a sister-in-law. She has issues and... Uh, her ex-husband at this point, her initial interaction with this man, my niece, was her mother ODing on drugs and this guy saying, this isn't my problem, you have to deal with it. And he left. And oh. she was, you know, like 10 years old. That mm-hmm. was that was the, like the first time she interacted with the man. And her mother ended up marrying him later. God, that's terrible. You know, it's... Oh. And, but it's it, you were put in the same situation. I mean, your mom's like, make sure I'm still breathing. <laughs> yeah. You know, and th- this is the problem I have is, is this the mental illness speaking or are they just a shitty person? And it's it's such a gray area. It's so hard to distinguish the two and to deal with it. You have to now be the mother of your sisters. You have to be the adult in the family because you don't have one. Yeah, I and I struggle that with that today. So I, I have been thinking about it a lot, especially now that you know I'm much older and thinking about having kids of my own. And I'm, you know, did I give it a fair chance, or was she um, was she really a bad person, or was it all just mental illness? And I just can't unravel the two. And I keep thinking, okay, you know, because I myself have been diagnosed with depression, I don't find myself doing things like that. Like I am not manipulative and I don't try and give everyone around me guilt trips and all of that. I also wonder, you know, about how she grew up and I I don't know much about that and how much that plays into it as well about like, you know, her behavior and all that. Cause my grandmother, (laughs) um, I, I cut off contact with her way before I, I ever did that with my birth mom and looking back on it now, she just seems like a terrible person. I don't know what her, if she was diagnosed with anything, but I, I wonder how much that factors into how my birth mom kind of treated me and my sisters and how she lived with, lived her life with us and the things that she'd be doing, such as abusing prescription drugs and moving from boyfriend to boyfriend and moving into their houses, you know, very quickly and establishing a relationship very quickly. Whereas I think a lot of other people wouldn't, would probably take more time with that, especially if they have, if they have kids. So I, I, it's really hard to unravel. And I'm still struggling with that today with, with what she was diagnosed with, with how she grew up and, and was she just a shitty person or not? I just can't figure it out. Everyone falls on hard times. Everybody has problems, but when you're a parent, that's the hard part is you have to get your shit together and take care of this child. If you have a problem such as depression or something, it's, 
important for you to try to identify that. It's important for you to reach out to others to help you with the rearing of this child. There's a challenge there, depression mm-hmm. or not. They just they they just go, well, you know, there's a problem or we're poor, we're living in a trailer, whatever the, you know, the issue is, I don't have any food in the fridge. And they never ask the child, like, what, what do you want? And I'm sure you probably would have said, I want to go live with dad. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely would have told her that if she had asked. And, and later on in the years, there were multiple custody fights between my birth mom and my dad. And um, after we initially moved in with my dad um, and my stepmom, he had full custody and my mom had summer visits uh, certain holidays on certain years, and every two weeks we would visit her for the weekend. Yeah, I just don't remember being asked anything like as a kid from her. Each time we got in the car to, sorry. <laughs> yeah, take your time. Each time we got picked up for the weekend, I didn't know where we'd be going. So it it could just be a different person's house. Um, someone she had met and gotten with and moved in with in, you know, just two weeks. Or, yeah, it, it, it just could be anything. So we never knew where we were going, uh, basically. And your, your, your father can't even say, I'm not bringing the child because she has visitation rights. But it's really hard to make that argument of, I don't feel safe dropping my kid off here because I don't know where this is or who's there and what's going on. Yeah, and I remember um, after that time especially that my dad and my stepmom would kind of counsel me on, you know, if you see this behavior from a boyfriend or, you know, someone, you know, that she's living with, then you need to do this or you need to call this person or this is, here's what to watch for and just make sure that you and your sisters are safe. And I hate that they had to do that. (laughs) I kind of feel like I was just aware of things that a kid shouldn't have to be aware of um, because of that. Um, Yeah. And I know that my parents struggled with it because I'm sure they didn't like having to do that. Yeah. and, And plus it was just really confusing as a kid and I don't really remember asking why I had to do that I kind of felt like I already knew because like I said we could be getting in the car and just go someplace that we hadn't been before um and my I know that my parents while they struggled with it they were also afraid to go to the court and file more papers and pay more money for lawyers because they were afraid that somehow you know, through any additional, like, rocking the boat with everything, that um, somehow my mom would be awarded full-time custody again, I guess, custody again, and they didn't want that. It's it's heavily weighed in the mother's favor in most states. Oh, God, yeah, especially back then. After that, we had um, multiple cus- custody battles, and I remember um, the one of the last ones that I was in seventh grade, and my mom was, you know, she had gone to court just out of the blue. Like, we never knew what was going to trigger it. And it happened often enough that we we looked for a pattern, but we just couldn't find anything. We don't, we don't know 
what was going on in her life or if something happened that would kind of like trigger a a like a custody like a, just another kind of like custody fight so um i think she kind of just made assumptions based on her dislike of my dad and my stepmom probably our reactions of like having to go over there i know it must have been obvious that sometimes we just did not want to visit and did not like want to be there I remember talking to my stepmom about it and my stepmom was just like, you know, you really have to tell your mom. I know that she's not asking you if you want to live with her, um, but maybe that that would help. I just hated having to face that as like a 12 or 13 year old having to tell your birth mom, I don't want to live with you. And can you please not can we please not go through this custody fight? Because it's not good for anybody. Yeah, that's not what any kid should have to do. You, you can't tell your guardian, your your parent, how to how to parent. It's and mm-hmm. they're not going to listen to a child either. So it's not really it's a it's a lose lose situation for everybody. But yeah, at least the cards are on the table. But mm-hmm. I'm sure that your mother didn't want anyone telling her how that she's a bad parent. I'm sure she was very defensive and, and territorial of you. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then after that, in the middle of eighth grade, we, um, my dad, my sisters and my stepmom um, and me moved out to Arizona because he's, his job moved him out there. And so we moved out to Arizona and the visitation kind of changed, of course. And so then it was, Gosh, a lot. It felt like a lot of weeks in the summer over the holidays. So certain holidays like Thanksgiving and um, Christmas and even certain birthdays we would spend with her. And she would always after um, she would always promise like, okay, no more boyfriends and no more moving. And then, you know, we'd come back for the next visit and she'd be living with someone else. And so it was just exhausting and confusing. She couldn't be alone. No, I I don't think she could. And a lot of those, I will give credit, a lot of of those boyfriends and a couple husbands took really good care of us while she was not able to. I remember one boyfriend that she lived with, he was just awesome. He uh, took care of us and I felt like I had a really great friendship with him. I guess to show it an example of kind of the communication that we had with my mom. I think I remember that we were supposed to call or that she was supposed to call uh, certain times or days, something like that, or, you know, at least a weekly call or something. Just and at the time I was 15 and um, I had, I called my mom's house and um, her boyfriend picked up the one that I had a, you know, friendship with and that I really liked he answered and he said, hey, and I said, hey, is mama there? And he said, no. And I was like, oh, okay, well, is she is she going to be back soon or, you know, what's going on? And he was like, she moved out. I just, it, I was floored. I was like, what? I knew immediately whenever he said that, like when he said that, I was like, okay, she's done with him and it's on to the next person. Then for the next three days after that, I called around to different like friends and family and I was trying to find her 
I don't know where she had gotten that time. I still don't know. But um, finally, I was able to get her on the phone. And she just kind of confirmed that she, um, her and the guy um, didn't work out. It, it just, it always happened like that quick and that unexpectedly. Done. And she's gone. And, yeah. And she would end up calling your father later, wherever she would end up to, for the next visit. I don't know how much communication they actually had. I know that sometimes that she would call and probably talk about those things. Other times, um, if she was going through a hard time, she would actually call and be talking and crying to my stepmom about it, which it must have been super weird <laughs> for uh, my stepmom and my dad. And she, I'm not sure why she would do that, uh, but I, I remember my stepmom, you know, on the kitchen phone, because it was corded <laughs> at the time, and she would just be sitting there, like, listening to my mom, and I, I'm still not sure what exactly they'd talk about, but I, I guess... My stepmom kind of felt like she had to be on the phone with her and at least make sure that whenever we were going to visit that um, it was actually, you know, some place that she was living and not in a shelter or or somewhere else. So your stepmom's a nice person and she was smart enough to know that, hey, I can talk to her and get the inside scoop on what's going on. So I know if we should drop the children off. And I'm sure your birth mother didn't want to speak to your father because they, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of bad blood there. So awkward alternative route to get information or whatever. I, I see why she would talk to her, but your your stepmom, uh, I'm sure it was awkward, but she had to figure out where your birth mom was and, and all that information because she was protecting yeah. you. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, they like documented what was going on and all of that just to have backup. Like I, I felt like there was just like this constant worry that there was going to be another custody battle. And if there was, that should be granted. So it was always like documenting everything and just kind of whenever we'd come back from a visit, kind of asking questions and checking to see like what was going on. If, you know, maybe my birth mother was thinking of going into that again or what but it was it was always just a very constant worry and I remember the custody um court case in while when I was in seventh grade it, it did go kind of full steam ahead and uh I remember my parents had to get a lawyer and uh, my birth mom had you know had had a lawyer after I even after I told her that I didn't want to live there with her. Um, she, you know, she went ahead with it. Luckily, for whatever reason, probably all the documentation that my, my parents had, um, she lost out on that one. And after that, she didn't really have any more until a little bit later on. And at that time, my sisters were still minors. So they kind of got dragged into another one. Let's see. So from there... Um, that was when I was 15, the last time that I talked to my uh, one of her boyfriends. And then after that, I guess it really kind of came down to when I was 19, the last time that I actually talked to her. 
it had all built up at this point and I was angry with her, but I felt so stuck because she was my birth mom. Um, and of course I loved her. It was just like a really big issue for me. I came out for a visit, even though I was 19, I, I wanted to visit her anyway. I was still living with my dad and my stepmom in Arizona, and she, my mom was still living in, you know, the more rural parts of North Carolina, because that's kind of where she grew up and where she was from. I had ended up emailing her and trying to set boundaries with her. Um, so when I was 18, I finally decided that something needed to happen because I, I could not go on taking care of her even as an adult and trying to look after my sisters. And at that time, you know, of course, when I'm 18, I don't have to visit anymore. Um, but then that kind of left my sisters on their own to visit. And that just made me really nervous. You know, I, I had talked to my stepmom at length about it. And she had suggested that I email my mom or my, my birth mom, because trying to talk to her on the phone would be having that kind of conversation with her would be kind of impossible because it would just spiral. And um, I felt like I would get guilt tripped and kind of manipulated into, you know, not trying to set boundaries. So I sent like this really long email and I kind of like <laughs> spilled my heart out into it. And I tried to set boundaries with her and explain like why I was angry and sad um, about everything that had happened over the years. And um, I had set some conditions. If we were to continue to have relationships, she had to meet. I, the only one I remember, <laughs> I think there were only like three or four. Yeah. And the only one I remember was she couldn't start any um, custody issues with my sisters because they were still minors. Otherwise, you know, I, I it, it'd be over. Like I couldn't continue the relationship and couldn't talk to her anymore. And after that, I, I, I wouldn't if she broke those. So um, a year went by, and after that email, she kind of... What was her response? I, I don't remember her response exactly, and she the only part that I remember was she kind of agreed to it and that I couldn't talk anymore about like how angry I was and sad that I was that she was neglectful and had had... Not that, that she had had a lot of boyfriends, but that she had moved in with these boyfriends with us. So I needed to stop talking about that. And i sure she didn't like to be reminded that she was neglectful um, and that we had ended up in a lot of weird places. And just, you know, just with a lot of people, it just, you know, it, it didn't have to be that way. You can date somebody without... <laughs> without, you know, exposing them to your kids for a little bit at least. Yeah. Th that was kind of like her response to it. And then we didn't talk about it because it just felt just too awkward and just weird to talk about. I mean, it was it was weird in the first place that I had to send an email like that, but... So did you end up seeing her? I did 
go and visit, uh, you know, just with my sisters after that, and everything was fine. And then one summer, I was 19, and it was May, June time, and my cousin was having a baby, so I had flown out to go to her baby shower. About a month later, she was going to get married, so I went out to her wedding. Everything was fine with that as well, so everything, it was fun, and I actually enjoyed hanging out with my mom during that time. And then a few days after the wedding, I can't remember why, but I I needed some money to go to the store or something like that. I kind of opened up her purse and then I was like, no, that's weird. Like, I'm not going to just go in there and, you know, get some money, even though I'd already asked her. And so I I went to her and I was like, hey, you know, and I kind of led her back to the kitchen where her purse was. And I, I touched her purse. Like, I just kind of put my hand on it quickly just to kind of indicate, like, what I need. Like, hey, I need that money to go to the store, but I didn't, like, want to go through your purse or anything. And I just kind of tapped it. And then she lost it. She was like, don't go through my purse. And and she was yelling at me. Like, it came out of the blue, and it was just, like, out of nowhere. I, of course, was arguing back. I got defensive. And then I was like, well, wait a minute, what's in your purse that, why would it matter if I even touched your purse or looked into it? Then she got even angrier. And then I got even angrier because I felt like she was probably hiding prescription drugs in there that she wasn't supposed to have. I figured that's what was going on and that maybe she was, you know, she was having an off day and she needed to take some maybe. And so I we yelled for a little bit at each other and I kind of stormed off and then I took a shower. And for some reason I, I start to do things and then I realized like why I'm doing that. So as I was taking my shower, I realized I don't want to be here and I'm an adult and I don't have to have any arguments with her. I can just leave. That's what I'm going to do. I started to have like a sneaking feeling. This was probably going to be the last time I I saw her. But I I tried not to think about it. So I just was crying and I I took my shower. And after I was done, I started packing up all of my stuff. Then I went to the living room and was packing up all of my things. And she noticed and then we started fighting again about it and about me leaving because she didn't want me to leave. I didn't want to leave, but I didn't want to have to go through with this. And Everything from the email kind of like spilled out again. <laughs> so we were arguing about that as well. During all of this arguing, I was still packing. And because I was determined, I finally finished. And I said, you're going to take me to the airport. And she said, no, I'm not. And I was like, well, then I'll call someone else to take me to the airport. And then she finally kind of like relented. And we started driving to the airport. And we needed to stop for gas. It was like silent through this whole thing. It was just... Oh, it was just really the worst, awkward and just yeah, terrible. The worst silence yeah. ever. <laughs> yeah, just that angry and on my part knowing like this is the last time I'm going to see her. I just, I can just feel it. Something is going to happen. I just know that this is the last time I'm going to see her. And so we, we got the gas. She started driving again, but she, it was such an odd kind of surreal moment. She started to go the wrong way into some sort of like, not a construction area, but it was kind of like roped off with like some yellow cones. And she 
drove through it a little bit through the the roping. I was like, what are you doing? And she finally realized like what was going on. For some reason, it was really funny. And we both started laughing about it. Then we we just fell silent again. And it was, I just will, I'll never forget that moment because it was like genuine laughter. And just kind of like this whole thing is just so weird and ridiculous. I'm sure that maybe she thought that after that, like we would, we'd be angry at each other for a while. But, you know, of course we'd talk again. After that happened, we drove the three or four hours, Justin, three or four hours to the airport and just complete silence. She really lived out in the rural area, didn't she? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I was just like, why do you have to live here? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So like I said, it was just in awkward, terrible silence. And we got to the airport and I took my bags out of the back. She got out. I hugged her and I said, I love you. And she said, I love you too. And uh, I went to the airport and I slept for a little bit. And, um, that, that was the last time that I would, I would actually see her. And after that, um, my sisters were still staying with her at that point. And we got a call from one of my sisters. She said that she wasn't coming home to Arizona. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so somehow my mom had, you know, convinced her that she should live with her. And but they still um, they still had like a I wouldn't say difficult, but at times it was difficult kind of relationship because uh, my sister desperately wanted my mom to be her mother, uh, to be my birth mother, to be like an actual mother. But. She had my stepmom, and if, if you know, my stepmom was her only option, then she wanted her to stay at home and, you know, be her mother in kind of like a really traditional sense. If, if her mom, if her birth mother couldn't be her mom, then she wanted uh, my stepmom to be there 100% of the time and uh, to be her mom. But she still, I think she kind of like displays some anger from between her and my birth mother onto her relationship with my step with our stepmom. Yeah. So after that call, we were all just kind of floored and just really surprised and uh, hurt. So how old was your sister at that time? My sister was, so let's see, she was 13 and legally you can, even as a kid, if both parents are, you know, responsible or what the court deems responsible, (laughs) Um, you know, if if both parents are just are available to have that child and they want that as well, then the the child can actually make a decision on where they live uh, with the court, just as long as there's not any kind of like major crazy factors that are getting in the way. The straw that birthed the camel's back, because I had told my mom, you know, if, you know, my sisters can't live with you and it's not healthy and I don't want you manipulating them. I don't want you trying to convince them that they should live with you. Even though my sister chose it, I feel, I still feel like my mom had a big part in that. Maybe perhaps a little unfairly blamed my mother for it. 
after that, I didn't talk to her anymore. I had, I think I, I know that there were some phone calls and some text messages and, um, I never really said, I'm not talking to you anymore. That was it. That was, I didn't talk to her besides probably a couple phone calls and texts about, um, about my sister after that. It's so weird because I felt even at the airport before all this happened with my sister that this was going to be the last time I see her for sure. And it ended up that it was. A question that people like to ask me when I say I've, you know, cut off a family member or anyone really, they go, well, don't you want to make amends with them? I mean, what if they died tomorrow? I lost my brother. I had cut him off about a decade before he passed away. And it actually was probably one of the best things I could have done because I didn't have to go through 10 years of watching him destroy himself or manipulate me or do terrible things for, for 10 years. Like it was actually better that I didn't put myself through that. Didn't feel any remorse or guilt really when, when he finally died because he was, he was already gone. So do people ask you like, well, you have to make amends with your mother because what if she died or what if something happened to her? Do, do you ever get that? I have gotten that, especially in the beginning, because in the beginning I was really vocal about what had happened and that I didn't have contact with my mother, my birth mother. I'd kind of make that clear to people now that I think about it, because, you know, you're meeting new people into your 20s and family always comes up. Fully think about it at the time, I was just kind of like, well, that's what's going to happen. I mean, like, it sounds terrible to say like kind of like this but I can't think of any other way I mean everyone is going to die I will deal with it when that comes but for right now my life and my mental health and like even my physical physical health is just so much better if she's not in my life Go ahead. Oh, no, I was uh, keep going. If you had more to say, that's about it. Okay. And that kind of, you know, that kind of that's a showstopper in a conversation yeah. <laughs> um, with someone. And there you just kind of get that look like, OK, like, you know, whatever works for you then. But I'm still judging you for not yeah. fixing things with your mom, even though I don't know all the details. Yeah. Uh, you know, because I kind of got like uh, this impression. And sometimes people would actually say, was it really that bad? Well, they, and they, they, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, they, they actually want to hear like you're, you know, you were beaten or you were, you know, abused in some way that, you know, is somehow measurable to justify this. And, and it's like, no, it, it doesn't have to be a physical abuse. It, mm -hmm. it can be a, a, a mental abuse and it can be a, a neglect and a manipulation. I think it's totally justified. But yeah. You're, you're preaching to the choir with me. <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, if you're asking someone about their family and they tell you that you don't have contact with someone or with a certain side of your family, you don't need any anything else after that. I mean, that kind of, I feel like should answer the question, but I, I'm on the other side of that question, you know. But the, for the people who ask those kind of questions... Can you not? <laughs> um, because then it kind of just devolves into, like you said, kind of a measurable, like people try and measure 
what it was that why you don't have any contact with them anymore. Like I said, it just devolves from there and it just seems judgmental to the other person. Um, and if you haven't been through that situation, you can never know what it feels like. And you can have empathy for that person, of course, and you can try and imagine, but to do something so drastic as to cut off a family member or family members or a side of your family, you will just never know exactly like how that feels and what what led to that. And it's not measurable. Do you still have contact with your siblings, your sisters? Yes. After a few years, I watched my sisters kind of the relationship go the same way. I think there there was not a single moment for them. There may have been, but I, I don't know uh, about it. They don't have any contact with my birth with our birth mom either. And that probably happened for them about in their early 20s, just like me, actually. Um, so my sister, the one who stayed behind, uh, stayed behind in North Carolina with my birth mom, she went through a lot of tough times. And I know that they were homeless for a time. And she was living in a shelter. I hate that she had to do that. Um, but she she eventually, um, through talking with my stepmom um, about the path that she was kind of going down, uh, my stepmom, you know, told her, you need to move out. It's not healthy. And if you continue down this road, you're going to end up in jail or you're going to die. Um, or you may live out your life just like your mother. And I know that you don't want that. So uh, she moved back to Arizona. So I actually flew out there and um, my sister had packed up all of her stuff into her car and we drove back to Arizona when she was um, 18 or 19. And meanwhile, my my other sister, uh, her twin sister, she did have contact. She was, you know, talking to her semi-regularly and um, while they had their issues, they we're still talking. She just, I don't think that she could imagine cutting her off like I, like I had done, but eventually it got there for both of them and they don't have any contact with her either. Literally followed your same path. Yeah. Do you have any clue where your birth mom is at? Do you, do you ever keep tabs on where she's, you know, if she's still alive or anything like that? Um, in the beginning, it was easy for me to do that because my sisters still had a relationship with her and who she was with and how the rest of the family was doing and all those details. Um, but as time went on, that faded as, you know, my sister's relationship with her faded. Um, but I, in the more recent years, I still do. I don't miss her. Just, I, I guess with you, like your brother, it's been almost 10 years now, but there are still things that if I'm out in public, I, if I see a woman who has like black curly hair and is wearing like a red scarf, like I, I get that jolt, like that that's her. But then immediately I'll realize that, you know, of course that's not her. Um, and I'll have like a day that I'm just kind of off and thinking about that kind of stuff. But, uh, in the beginning, it was really hard because I felt like I was grieving, but it was so hard because 
that person is still living. And you kind of, at least in my case, I knew what she was doing and I knew where she was. And all it would have taken was a phone call or driving by to see her and get in touch with her again. But you know that if you do, it's going to hurt you more. So there was there was a lot of years of um, like kind of a grieving period, even though that person's still alive. And it's just extra difficult, I, I feel like, because of that. Um, but in, in the most recent years, I do find myself just occasionally kind of wondering, is she still alive? Because I don't know, you know, if she were to pass, if I would even know. I kind of look around on the internet and if her, you know, Facebook profile is still active, if she has like a new picture um, or kind of like try and look up, you know, where she's living and stuff like that. I guess the last time I did that was when, um, when I was 26, 27, because at, at that time I was engaged. And, uh, of course, whenever you're getting married, um, people ask you about your family and you're thinking about your family because you're, you know, starting your own family in a way. Um, so I kind of reflected on her a lot during that period. So I was looking her up and um, kind of doing that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how to explain the the feeling. Yeah, I don't know. I I wonder if my brother was still alive that how I would feel about it. But I just I think back to those years and like you, I went through a grieving process because he he was already dead to me. Mm-hmm. And when he finally did pass, it was almost a relief. This, this sounds horrible, but it's like a sick animal being put down. Yeah. It, it, it's No, I, I totally understand that. I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't, but it will just kind of be like a final chapter closing, I feel like. You, you'll know it's, it's it's over and she's not suffering anymore. Yeah. But if you do you know, have family reunions or meetings, you can always bring your father, you know? It's, <laughs> it's, yes. You, know, you have that. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And and now I have a whole new family, too, with my, my husband's family. So it's, um, I don't, I don't feel anymore. I, I used to feel like this. I used to feel fractured mm-hmm. um, because I didn't have any contact with my mom. And I didn't, with cutting her off, kind of cut off her side of the family. And so I I do have cousins that, you know, we're friends on Facebook and all of that, but we didn't end up growing up together into our adult years. So we don't really know each other that well. um, And I don't really have much really at all contact with them. Um, And I, for a long time, like I said, I, I felt kind of fractured by that, but also not completely because my stepmom was there and I considered her to be my mother. So I'm not broken. And the way that my family is, isn't broken because I still have my dad and my sisters um, and his side of the family and, and my stepmom. So. And you always make new family. I, I always make my family with my friends and my wife and her family. So it's, when when we say we we cut our families off, it just means that we've cut off 
a section of something and, and accepted, you know, made room for something else that's better. Yeah, I like that. Make room for, for other people. I like that. I like that a lot. That's that's how I like to think of it. I mean, I for a while I didn't go to Thanksgiving or Christmas or anything with my family. I would do it with my friends and my friends who no longer spoke to their parents or parents, <laughs> whatever. We would have our own Friendsgiving and Friends Christmas yes. and those type <laughs> of things. And let me tell you, no one ever argued. It was never awkward or weird. It was, it was very. I know it was always better in a way. <laughs> it was always better because <laughs> you're with your friends. You weren't. You're with people that you're choosing to be around, not people that you're expected or obligated to be around. I was so happy that you said that your your birth mother's boyfriends is you know as shitty as some of them might have been. None of them abused you. None of them yeah. sexually molested you or anything. I was like so happy that that didn't happen. You know, I, like, I feel oh. really lucky that and a miracle that didn't somehow happen because there were a lot of people and it really it was just a very like real per, like a very real possibility in mm -hmm. our lives. So, yeah, I feel really lucky that that didn't happen. But I w I've been really moved by some of the episodes. Um, and I, I even emailed you um, with the PTSD one, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of thanking you for doing that one, because it you know, we hear about PTSD a lot nowadays, you know, with the wars and stuff, but it was kind of a different sort of story. And I'm just really glad that those kind of stories are being told. I, I just, I, I guess I, I want to hear the things that I never get to hear. I want people to talk about these things because, you know, if you hear, listen to This American Life or some overly produced show and they, they talk about, you know, a drug user or an abuse or PTSD, it's, I feel like it's still whitewashed. It's still overly polished to the point where you think, okay, that's that's a story and it's moving, but you don't hear it. I, I can't relate to a lot of those stories that I hear on other podcasts or the radio or TV because I, I, it's still watered down enough where they just don't let the person say whatever they want. Yeah, I feel like it's more real this way and mm -hmm. uh, it's easier to connect to because yeah while I love uh this American life and like a lot of other podcasts and they are moving this stays with me that's well we didn't really get to the adoption part should we still yeah I'm still recording <laughs> yeah if you want to talk about that so when I was a kid I remember asking my stepmom can't you just adopt us her answer just kind of like broke my heart because I wanted it so bad. She said that, no, I can't do that. Uh, cause you're, you know, your, your mother is your mother. And, you know, I can't ask her to give up her parental rights, even though, you know, she may be neglectful or, uh, you know, manipulative or anything like that. It's still just like, a, I guess she felt that it was just like such a basic right of uh, maybe for someone who you know had given birth to you she you know didn't think that it would be appropriate to ask at that time after that I just you know kind of forgot about it in my early 20s I kind of thought about it again and I thought you know maybe now that I'm you know not a minor anymore that this this can happen and um but I was I was afraid to ask and because I I didn't want that same answer and I was just it's so silly because I, I feel like I can ask her anything and I've asked her just 
crazy off the wall things before um and you know had talks with her and and all of that um but this one thing I was just like really afraid to ask because I just didn't want to hear no again even though at the time uh that would not have gone over well <laughs> uh that would cause that would have caused just I can't even imagine how many issues and and you know legal issues for them and all of that my sisters were 18, 19, or 20. I can't remember, but it wasn't that long ago. And my sister who had stayed with my parents, so the sister that did not move out to North Carolina with my birth mother, she brought it up to my stepmom. And I got a call one day from my stepmom um, and could kind of tell she was a bit nervous about asking it because maybe, like me, I was nervous to ask about it. But since my sister had brought it up, I, I guess she felt like she needed to talk to me about it and all of that. And she called me and was like, hey, you know, your sister asked me about doing an adult adoption. And is that something that you want? You know, I'm not trying to pressure you or anything. Um, but since she had mentioned it, you know, I just thought I'd ask. And, you know, you can think about it and all of that. And I was like, I don't even have to think about it. It's of course, like I was afraid to ask you. <laughs> um, after that, um, me and my sisters got together and we talked about it. And, you know, we kind of like made a decision, like if one of us doesn't want to do it, that's completely okay, totally understandable. But what, whatever we're going to do, we'll do it together. So we'll either do the adoption together or we will just leave things as it is and, you know, continue to have like a great relationship with our stepmom and all of that. My other two sisters were just as eager to do it. I think that was when I was about 25 and getting a lawyer involved. Um, we found that, you know, we could do the adult adoption even though I was 25. And um, if there's any other Arizona's listening, Arizona's listening, um, there's four reasons you can you can do an adult adoption and one of them is you can ask the court to adopt an adult person who is your stepchild niece nephew cousin or grandchild um, or if you're the foster parent and everyone is consenting so that that would be our case it took a while um, just because you know we're I was in the process of planning my wedding and all of that there are 23 pages in the Arizona adult adoption packet. It is honestly just page after page after page of repetitive information, as well as just some areas that are very confusing and not labeled. And one part that I kind of got stuck on for a few months was at the bottom of one of the pages, it says motivation. Please state the motivation for wanting this adoption and why it would be in the public's best interest for the adoption to be granted. I remember filling this out with my stepmom and just turning to her and being like, how do we describe our relationship yeah. <laughs> and everything that's happened on two little lines? I kind of got stuck on that for a while. And it was... How are you supposed to summarize a <laughs> <Yeah>. lifetime? <laughs> there were certain parts of it that were so emotional, even though you're just filling in the blanks or something between everybody's traveling and you know where everyone's living nowadays as of week <laughs> um did it go through 
<laughs> well, not quite. Um, but as of this week on Tuesday, um, my dad got the last papers signed and notarized. <sighs> so even that part is just emotional. <laughs> So going forward, actually, and it's funny that we're doing this interview today because I'll be dropping them off at the lawyers and that's, <laughs> it's already emotional anyway, but that, that'll be a crying drive. <laughs> yeah, it's just funny that we're doing this interview today and that I will be dropping off the finished papers at the lawyers today. Um, but after that, in the state of Arizona, the next step is to file the papers at the court, which the we've chosen for the lawyer to do, but um, you can do it yourself in Arizona. After that, have to schedule like a court hearing date, determine that everyone is uh, capable of kind of making this decision. For some instances, then you have to serve notice that this will be happening to what they call interested parties. But since we are all you know, we're not minors, we're all adults. We, I don't think that we have to do that part, but it's still not completely clear. So it, it's still very um, confusing, even even after you get done with the paperwork. Um, so you're worried that the interested party would be your mother and you'd have to somehow notify her? Is that kind of the, the catch? Or At first I was worried about that, but after researching and asking the question, we don't have to do that since we're adults. But it was a real fear at one point because, you know, of course, someone like that would say no, um, even though we haven't had contact in almost 10 years. And then after you attend the hearing and all of that, they, in the state of Arizona, they um, even issue a new birth certificate. And I just, thinking about that, uh I, uh, I feel like that that will just be so healing in a way. Of course, there's always going to be that pain of what I went through, but I I just get this feeling that there's going to, it'll kind of heal some of, some parts of it mm-hmm. and it'll just feel amazing. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's starting over. It's, it's a new, it's your, officially not tied to that past it's not written down anymore I going through this I kind of felt like there was a part of me that was kind of uncomfortable because I felt like I was rewriting history a part of me was just completely you know okay with that but that's what I want to do um and then the other part was it feels really odd that you can do that you go to history class you're expecting um but you don't get of course (laughs) um you know history as it happened and i have always had i'm kind of like a history nut like i I want the historical facts and things to be correctly documented and all of that i i don't really find myself feeling like that now that the papers are in order and i just kind of instead of rewriting history it's gosh i don't want to say correcting it but it it it's going to reflect what has been the situ like our family situation for the past 21 years. So in the motivation part of the adoption papers, I wrote my stepmother's full name has been my mother for the last 19 years would like to formalize this 
and have future legal and financial support and security for our family arrangement. But that just, of course, it doesn't cover, you know, everything. But that's kind of how I like to think about it, our special family arrangement that we're, we're just, we're formalizing it. You know what? I, I know I feel better when I get something off my chest. I don't know why, you know, I don't know why it's therapeutic or what it is about it, but you, you have it all balled up inside you and then you just tell somebody and then all of a sudden it's, it's just not as bad anymore. So. All right. Well, thank you, Justin. I, I really appreciate, you know, you letting me come on here and everything and to tell my story. So have a good one. You too. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Tessie, for sharing your story. Stay tuned. I have a special announcement at the end of the episode. Uh, next up is Nicole. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. In your email, you, you talked about your father, but then you, you really wanted to focus on aspects of emotional abuse and stuff. Um, did you not want to talk about your father at all? Or did you just want to like make reference to it? Actually, he's he's very interesting. I definitely love to talk about him a bit, as well as just a few other people I've encountered over the years who have some similarities. I, I know that you have suffered from uh, emotional abuse and, and verbal abuse, I'm assuming. So how would you define those things and, and uh, where do you want to go from there? Probably the easiest way for me to begin is just uh, I'll tell you about what happened with my dad. Um, I had a pretty ordinary upbringing. In fact, it was quite a good upbringing. You know, if you can imagine quite a typical middle-class um, upbringing in Auckland, New Zealand, you know, I was living with both my parents and I, my sister who was two years older. When I was around the age of 10, my dad started to become quite abusive with us. It started out with the verbal abuse. He was extremely critical and he had a very explosive temper. As an example, it was our job to do the dishes every night after dinner. If you didn't do everything perfectly, he would just completely go off at you. And the way he would criticize, it wouldn't be that he was criticizing what you did. He'd be criticizing who you were. For example, you'd have to dry down the kitchen bench so that it was perfectly dry. And if he saw a droplet of water, then that would become, you're lazy, you're good for nothing, you're disgusting. And he would just go on and on and on. That kind of verbal abuse was very inconsistent. So it was kind of like you never knew when he was going to do it and kind of you didn't really know what you'd done wrong. Was he having a bad day and that's when he would lash out or was it just off and on arbitrarily? It was it was really unpredictable. Um, I should probably tell you a little bit about him. He, he'd have these mood shifts. Sometimes it was almost as though he, he acted like he was drunk. He would slur his speech and he'd look at you really, really strangely and he'd act really, really strangely and really erratically. He would sometimes talk to himself or he'd kind of talk to you, but he'd say things to you that didn't really make sense. For example, you'd say, Dad, why are you staring at me? And he'd say, you know. And I'd be like, no, I don't know. <laughs> and he'd just stare at you and say, I know what you've done. And you'd go, oh, what have I done? <laughs> it was it was very spooky. Then he'd have his moments where it was the extremely explosive temper. And sometimes that did get 
you know, he'd get violent. And he never, he wasn't drinking. He wasn't on drugs. Not that we ever saw. That's not to say that he wasn't, you know, doing something. There were certainly times where he'd, he'd get this look on his face where he looked like he was not home. It was, he looked like he was on drugs. He lived such a secretive life outside of our home, it's very possible that he was on something. But I also picked up from experience that it would get much worse if he was hungry. I know it sounds strange, but if he hadn't eaten, he'd get into what we call zombie mode. And that's when he'd start acting, you know, he'd be acting like he wasn't on this planet. Well, that could be like hypoglycemic or even diabetic in a way, but not to that extreme, (laughs) you know? Exactly. The other things that he would do is he would, um, again, it's one of those things that it sounds so little, but when it happens every day for years, it it becomes quite big. He would sit in the same room as you and he would stare and he would just stare at you for minutes or hours or for as long as he was in the room with you. And he'd stare at you with complete contempt and like that kind of look where someone's eyes are narrowed and their lip is curled. I would turn to him and say, why are you staring? And he'd either touch or he'd shake his head or he'd whisper and then he'd go back to doing it. And it sounds really creepy and it is. Um, He'd come up behind you in the house and do it. (laughs) So he'd be like in your bedroom or walking around or in the bathroom and he'd just silently come up behind you and just stand there and stare at you silently. Very intimidating. Uh, That's really creepy. I mean, he just wouldn't say anything to you. He'd just do it. Exactly. And he'd say very threatening things as well. Me and my sister, was, as we got older, sometimes end up getting into verbal altercations with him where kind of yell, yell back at him. Mm-hmm. And he'd get right up in your face and he'd raise his fist at you. And yeah, he, he, was, he was very, very intimidating. There were points, he, he was, um, it was like emotional manipulation because when the intimidation stopped working, he would revert to another method. So the other method that he used was making you feel guilty or making you feel sorry for him. One thing he was really good at was crocodile tears, basically, and he'd he'd sob like a child, but no tears would come out of his eyes, and it was a very fake crying. It was again, it's quite creepy because it's a grown man and he's he acts very like he's very childlike sometimes mm-hmm. and also very fake. There was a point I was eleven when I first began to experience depression and anxiety due to the environment in my home. I was suicidal many times over the years. And one of the times when I was suicidal, I was 15. I was very, very unwell. And I was very, very vulnerable. I was in one of the worst mental spaces I'd ever been in. He didn't like that I was getting all the attention in the family. My mum, who was extremely nurturing and extremely loving, was giving me all of her attention. We might get to that later, but that was one of the main issues that he actually had with me and my sister was that we took the attention from him. Mm -hmm. So one day I came home from school in that very vulnerable state that I was in, and he was sitting on the couch with a shotgun. He said he was going to kill himself. I, I was home alone. It was just me and him. I was 15, and he was my father sitting there telling me that he wanted to kill himself And he repeated back to me everything that I'd been saying. So everything that I'd been saying about myself, about how I was very depressed and I had very low self-esteem. He he did all that and he made me comfort him. 
And he made me talk him out of killing himself, which is in hindsight quite a huge responsibility to put on a young girl, especially one who is suicidal herself. Yeah. But it was it wasn't real. He wasn't suicidal. He was twisting things. Again, it was crocodile tears. He was doing the sobbing, but there was no te- no actual tears. And that's why, despite everything that went on, and despite the fact that me and my sister hated him and hated his presence, and as did my mum, we couldn't get rid of him because every time we tried to stand up to him or get him to leave, <laughs> he would um, cry and talk about how lonely he was. And at one point, he lied and told us that he had throat cancer and that he was going to die. And so we all felt sorry for him. And that was his way of trying to get back into our life again. It was completely untrue. He didn't have any kind of cancer. It's it's all manipulation for control. And whether that be not wanting you to leave or whether that be just to break you down. So he holds on to that control, it sounds like. Yes, exactly. And I think the worst part about it is that it's when it's your father, you want him to love you. You want to love him, you you know, so you, you care about him and you do feel guilty. And also, as young, you know, children and, and with my mother, we were all, uh, we, we needed him. My parents were in a business together. We absolutely needed him financially. And my mum basically relied on him for a job. I think that's the theme I've noticed with psychological abuse is that it's always someone who holds something over you it makes makes it very difficult for you to stand up against them. Yeah, because it's the physical thing, the the financial support that they that they can actually have a tie to, that they actually can play that card. Yeah, so at this point it probably just sounds like he's a guy who says mean things and stares at you sometimes, but I can give it, give you some more examples of, you know, why what he was doing had more of a serious undercurrent. Mm-hmm. When I was about 12, he told me that he'd killed people. And he told me about the people that he'd killed. Now, a disclaimer, <laughs> I still to this day don't know if it's true. He lies so much about so many different things. It's one of these things where I still don't know if it's true. But again, telling a 12-year-old that you've killed people is is quite quite a difficult thing to hear especially because he he described this man that he'd killed he told me that after he did it he opened the man's wallet and inside were pictures of his family and I think I actually internalized a lot of guilt around that because I'm a very sensitive person I can't even watch kids movies without feeling very upset when a character like Mufasa dies (laughs) in The Lion King yeah so when he told me about the fact that he'd killed this man and then, you know, he'd orphaned these children, I think I simultaneously felt very intimidated and frightened of him, but also very upset that somehow I was connected to this this crime. Yeah. Again, don't know if it's true, but there was many indications that over the years he'd been involved in things like that. Whether it was killing people or just hurting them, he certainly came home quite a few times with cuts and bruises and teeth missing, actually. Um, He was a very violent person, and he really, really enjoyed hunting. I still remember him coming home when I was a kid. He'd he'd stuck a pig, you know, a wild boar, Mm -hmm. 
and he had it on his back and he carried it through the door and he was covered head to toe, carry style in blood. That's just the kind of man he was. He loved the thrill of hurting people or hurting things or creatures. Everything was a game to him. Everything was about him winning or somehow coming out like the big guy. How many siblings do you have? Just one older sister. Okay. Do you think he wasn't wanting to be a father or? Yes. He met my mum when they were both really young. It was the typical relationship where he was very protective of her, aka controlling. She was very, a very sweet woman and she likes to be looked after. So that was an appeal in the beginning. Um, she always wanted kids. He just wanted her. To this day, they separated, divorced years ago. To this day, he still stalks her. When we came along, he was not very involved as a father, but he participated on the level that we were fun to play with. So he would play with us. So for the first few years of my life, he was actually, I guess, a good father. He wasn't as involved as my mother, but he was still, you know, a fun, fun dad. It seemed to be, for some reason, it was when we reached that adolescent age that things really, really changed. But my mum will tell you that it's almost like he experienced quite a mental decline. I know that with certain kinds of mental illness, they can kick in in the late 20s, and it's possible that he started to decline. That said, although he shows signs of mental illness, he's actually, I lean more towards that he's actually psychopathic because... He holds down a job. He to, to the right people, he will switch it on and off. So if you put him in front of a psychiatrist or a psychologist, yeah. all of a sudden, he's fine. And he says all the right things. And he can be the most charming guy at a party. I think with mental illness, you don't have, a, have that much control over it. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. Um, I, I do have a family member that can turn it on and off like you just described. And it's scary because they will be almost a maniac to you to the point where you call the police. And as soon as the police show up, they're sweet as pie. And the police say there's no problem here. and They're totally won over and they leave. So, wow. Yeah, it's... Um, so when you said that, it, it kind of struck a chord because I, I have a family member that does that. And I know that they suffer from a mental illness, but that level of manipulation is, I don't think that they're too far gone. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to, how are they able to pull it together on a dime in order to get what they want? Right. And I've always been quite confused, to be honest. I think the conclusion I've come to is that you... You can't always put people in a box. No. I think he's got attributes of, he's got, he's shown attributes of schizophrenia. He's shown attributes of bipolar and he's shown attributes of psychopathy. I'm not going to label him as any one or, or three. Everyone's different, you know, but he just so shows these various signs. I think you're, you're right. You, you cannot label him with anything or put him in a box. It's, it, you cannot categorize that. Because who knows what symptoms are even real. Right. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> I think I, I ended up studying psychology and becoming quite absorbed in true crime. I think it's because I've pretty much spent most of my life searching for answers about why people do what they do. 
In terms of the psychopathy thing, there are a few things that he did which are a lot more frightening. I didn't really realise it at the time, but I think I'm quite sure he killed my pets. I was a child who loved animals, especially my first love was birds. My first bird died and then I I bought some finches and I loved I loved my finches. And they they were in a cage that hung from the ceiling, so no creatures could, you know, get to the cage, like no cats or anything. Yeah. Anyway, one day I found my beloved finches dead and the way I found them was that their bodies were still inside the cage but their heads were on the floor I was very baffled at the time as to how their heads had come off <laughs> yeah um, it's not a normal thing no and it, at first I thought could a cat have done it I really really thought about it I thought okay if, if a cat managed to jump up and cling on to the sides of the cage the cat still couldn't have enticed the finches to put their heads through the bars <laughs> so that those heads could be removed. There was literally no way it could have happened other than a person. Yeah, you're trying and to it, find reason where there isn't any. Absolutely. So at the time, I think we put it aside as a mystery. We were all very fooled. But you know when you're immersed in it, you, you don't see the forest for the trees. So the next thing was that I got really into cats and I was – 11 when I was extremely depressed and very lonely because I was actually getting bullied at school as well, which is partially why I had such a serious mental decline because I felt unsafe at school and I felt unsafe at home. So the whole world for me was just absolutely terrifying. I begged my parents to let me have a cat. Well, my mum let me have a cat and she I felt like partially she pretty much saved my life um, because I was so isolated, but I had a, you know, a little creature that cuddled me and, you know, we hung out and I just loved that cat. And a few years later, my mum went away for business and my dad was looking after me. So it was just me and him home alone. And I think my sister had actually moved out at that point. So it was just us two. Suddenly my cat became very sick and, and it was a Friday and I said to my dad, we've got to get her to the vet. She's really, really not well. And he said, oh no, we'll see how it goes. And I remember that Friday night, I put her beside my bed and I I could tell that she was dying. Um, and I knew that it might be my last night with her. The next morning, she was curled up in a ball and she was just groaning and just moaning. I was absolutely terrified because she was clearly in so much pain. I ran to my dad and I said, we have to get her to the vet right now. And he's, <laughs> this is so eerie. Sometimes he he gets this look on his face where he's very calm, but it's more than calm. It's kind of like he's satisfied. It's very hard to describe it. It's It's like a numb look, but it's also like a satisfied content look. It's very, very creepy. So I was crying and I was saying dad we need to get her to the vet and he very calmly said I need to have a shower <laughs> first and so he got in the shower and he locked the door and I was waiting because my poor cat was moaning and moaning and she was in so much pain and I was terrified and he was in the shower for 45 minutes and I was banging on the door pleading with him Dad, please, because I, I wasn't old enough to drive. I, I couldn't take her myself. Dad, please, we need to get her to the vet. 
what ended up happening is we didn't get her to the vet in time. She had a cardiac arrest right in front of me. I'll never forget her face and the way her body contorted. And that was my little kitty dying right in front of me. He was watching this and he was watching me like, like it was enjoyable for him. Later on, the vet said that she seemed like she'd been poisoned. Her, her liver had ruptured, I think, um, massive renal failure or something. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he poisoned her. And if he didn't, he, in the very least, did not care about his daughter or the cat. Does that make sense? Just from the way you describe it, I think he poisoned the cat. I know animals can get sick and can fall ill and, and go very quickly, but the means of the way your cat went, that's not a typical way that an animal will die. A normal father's response is not what he did. Even if he didn't want to take the cat to the vet, he could have just sat you down and said, there's nothing we can do. I'm sorry. Let's bury the cat. Something that's more of a normal kind of a reaction and not ignoring you and then waiting for the cat to die and then watching as it happens. Right. I think what's so eerie about it is in any heightened emotional situation, it's normal to have some sort of emotional response. But in heightened emotional situations, he seems to have none. It's like one of the few times where he seems very, very calm. I've since done some research about psychopaths and basically about the fact that because they don't feel a lot, for them, very, very extreme emotional situations feel good. So say, for example, for me, I watch Grey's Anatomy and that might provide to me like kind of a nice level of drama because I might experience some slight emotional highs and lows and it kind of feels, you know, it feels a bit good in a way. So that's like a normal person. That's how, that's how we get our stimulation. Whereas if you're psychopathic, things like that, you don't really feel anything. So it takes something quite extreme for you to feel stimulated. Does that make sense? Yeah, you nailed it. A, a psychopath will do more and more extreme things to see if they felt anything. And that's how we get people that do kill people because they're looking for that sense of that reaction, that emotional reaction. Yeah, and that's the impression I get from him is that when other people are really suffering around him, he seems quite satisfied with it. That's one of the little things that he did. There was, he, over the years, he kind of proved himself to be perhaps a bit of a, he, there was definitely signs of some perversion. One, I, I caught him doing a few things which are very actually difficult to talk about. But one thing he did when I was 15 is we were having one of those days where he'd been having a go at me and I'd been being a bit smarmy back at him, you know, back chatting. Again, we were home alone. I was about 15. He grabbed a hold of me in the garage and he physically restrained me in a way where we were both facing the same direction. He was behind me. He looped his legs around my legs and he looped his arms around my arms and then behind my head. So I was restrained in like a starfish position and his body was pressed up against behind me. It, it's very hard to find words to describe it, but basically he was physically aroused. Yeah. And he didn't let me go for a long time. And he was kind of 
again, it was that eerie calmness where I was struggling and becoming very distressed. And he, he was just saying nothing. If anything, he was kind of giggling. Getting into it. Yeah. And I kind of blocked that out because I could not understand why it had happened. And there was a few other little things over the years that just kind of indicated that he was mm, a bit perverted. Many people have accused him of sexually assaulting them, but he always says that they were lying and no charges have ever been pressed against him. But certainly the stories are there and, you know, I've got one myself. And I mean, if he's that kind of awkward and brazen with his actions and he gets into fights and he, I mean, you, you saw firsthand how weird he would behave. <sighs> I mean, because he is so charming, um, he turned a lot of people against us over the years. When my mum finally did try to break up with him, he tried to destroy her reputation in the industry. He dragged out the legal situation for about 10 years. He told everyone that she was crazy. He had actually been prescribed Seroquel by a psychiatrist. And he went around telling everyone that she was in Seroquel and she wasn't. But it's just an example of how, you know, he twists things to make it make it look like it's always everyone else and not him. Mm -hmm. Over the years, he's sucked in so many people and so many women, but he's ended up with very few friends because he chews them up and spits them out. And he's made a lot of enemies. But anyone who is a current friend of his will swear black and blue that he is amazing and that everyone else has been treating him terribly. It puts everyone in a hard spot, especially people that have been wronged by him or know him. And then you see this person like your father with somebody that is befriending him and nice to him. And you want to tell them you need to watch out. You, you, you know, we want to warn them. But as soon as you do that, it's all turned back on you. Yeah. So I sometimes feel like what I what we went through as a family wasn't actually that extreme. And it's not compared to, we weren't, the, the physical violence that was there was very minor. I've heard about what other people have gone through and it's really not nearly as bad. And so I was talking recently with a psychologist and I said, how is it that I've ended up with PTSD and a dissociative disorder? How many years? It's like, I've, I've had mental illness for half of my life, anxiety, depression, anorexia, OCD, as a result of my father. But how is it that what he did can have such an extreme effect? They said, well, it does though, even though it doesn't sound that bad when you talk about it, when you're being verbally abused or intimidated on a daily basis, especially when you're quite young, it does have quite a big effect. Oh, absolutely. In the military, when you go through your boot camp, your basic training, they're giving you a very heightened environment without putting a hand on you and they're doing that to get you ready for combat and if you're living in that for too long that's a problem right maybe it's a bad comparison but that's the only thing I come up with off the top of my head <laughs> but oh no it's a great comparison because he was actually in the military I've met people since who are in the military or who are ex-military it is it's the same thing it's over time, you're breaking down someone's sense of self. So it begins with embarrassment, making them question who they are. So when you're mocking someone or calling them names or shaming them, 
it makes them, you know, question their identity and it allows you to then replace that sense of identity with, with your choosing or with your authority or with your power. That's the whole thing. It's to dehumanize them and then you're in control of them. It's as simple as that. Uh, you know, nobody's mocking or shaming somebody because they're trying to do anything positive with it. It all kind of came up for me recently when I had a boss at work do some very similar things to me. It took me about five or six months to actually realize what was going on. Unfortunately, I went into quite a massive psychological decline um, while it was happening. I was experiencing quite intense self-loathing, really, really low self-esteem. When I went to a psychologist about it, we, we basically determined that what was going on is that I was being abused in, in a subtle way. And that's what was causing me to feel like that. And this, this person at work was using techniques that I see all the time, some of them similar to what my dad did. And the first one is that you, you get them on side. So you make them respect you. You might have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them and say nice things about them. Make them feel like your opinion matters and that you want, so you want that person's validation. You want them to like you. They might also take that opportunity to get you to reveal some personal things about yourself. And then what they'll do is expose you, shame you publicly in front of a whole bunch of people. And it's a massive betrayal. That cycle will go on and on and on. And, it, and if you try to call them up on it or say, why are you being so mean? Then they'll turn it around and they might gaslight you and say, oh, no, you're just insecure and you're imagining things. I'm just trying to help you. I'm just trying to manage you. Or, it's very or, manipulative. Yeah, or, or they'll just say, well, you should have thicker skin and it's your fault again. It's always turned back on the victim. Exactly. And again, some of the things that go on, it, they seem so subtle. This isn't people hitting each other. It's just shaming someone publicly or moving the goalpost or criticizing them too much. But I've, I've met so many people in my workplaces. I've, I've seen it happen in, in my mum's relationships and my sister's relationships. With, I've had it happen to me with an old teacher. It actually can have this massive effect on you when it, when it goes on over time. And the thing that really bugs me about this kind of long-term, very, very subtle, insidious abuse is that it's so hard for you to do anything about it. And it's so hard for you to tell someone about it because I can't go up to someone and say, my dad stares at me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't, it doesn't sound impactful and it doesn't sound valid. It's very much a bigger picture thing. There's no law being broke. So no one's going to take it seriously. It's like, yeah, regardless of whether the it's right or wrong, there's no recourse that anyone would want to take or thinks they can take. Yeah, but it can just be so damaging. And I've, I've seen people quit their jobs. Mm -hmm. I know of a colleague who said she used to have panic attacks on the way to work. These things do really affect people. And I, I guess what I struggle to understand is why people do it to each other. And I can kind of see why my dad did it. I can see that there are elements there of him being psychopathic and enjoying other people's pain. But when it's your boss or your colleague, yeah. they're not necessarily psychopaths. They, they might have elements of it, but it's, I think a lot of people have a dark side. It's, um, I want to just be one up on you. 
that's all I want to be is just one up above you. So I feel like I'm the, the coolest person in the room or I'm the, I'm the guy or the smartest person in the room. And so you have to knock everybody else down so you can rise up. That's just the common business culture most places is cut everyone else down so you're the shining light. If you raise everybody else up, then you become the shining light. <laughs> you're not, not when you knock them down. Um, contrary to popular belief, I didn't quit my day job to do my podcast full time. I quit my day job because I was having high blood pressure, panic attacks, and not sleeping for like a month straight. Oh, man. And my boss was telling me, you're not doing a good enough job. <laughs> and I'm working nonstop. The, the last position I had, I was very much uh, un- underqualified for, you know, I was learning the job and uh, I was treated as if I should have hit the ground running when that wasn't the case at all. And they just needed a warm body to fill this position. And I said, sure, because they told me you're either going to be fired or you take this position. And then I got the position and then they told me you're not doing a good enough job. <laughs> so, oh, wow. you know, it, it's. I saw that firsthand. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I, I think gaslighting, I'm sure everybody does it, but I feel like men do it a lot more out of a sense of dominance, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I could be wrong. could be 50-50 right down the middle, but <laughs> I think it's a guy thing to do myself. My my boss was uh, an older man, and he uh, he would mess with everybody. He just wasn't a good person, and he would manipulate you and make you feel like it was your fault. One day I just told him, I'm like, well, this is all my fault, so make sure you mark me down for it. Like, trying to get myself fired. <laughs> and uh, and at that, he, he laughed and said, oh, you're doing a good job. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. How am I doing a good job? Because you've been slamming me for the last two months, you know? Oh, wow. It seems like such a game, doesn't it? Yeah, it is a game. You're right. I couldn't imagine. Like, I, I know my my mother wasn't very supportive of me and any ideas or any uh, plans, or jobs, whatever I might have were terrible ideas and I shouldn't do them. So it wasn't as intimidating or weird as what you went through, but every single, you know, oh, I got this job. You want to hear about it? No, it probably is horrible and you'll get fired. Like, oh, I'm going to quit my job. You shouldn't quit your job. You'll, you'll become homeless. It's like, mm, it's Well, that is really damaging because it's sending you the message that nothing you do is ever good enough. Yeah. It's similar, but listening to your story, it's way, like, I, I'm like, oh, my mom wasn't so bad. Like, you, you know, you hear some of these physical abuse stories and you think, oh, well, my story's not so bad. I, I'll tell you right now, the, some of the things you just told me about your father, no, that's really screwed up. And I, I couldn't imagine living in that sort of environment at all. And you shouldn't be afraid of your, your parental guardian. That's the person that's supposed to protect you and give you support. Yeah. yeah and yeah, <laughs> it's nice. It's honestly, it's nice to be validated because I've, I've spent a lot of my life feeling like I was crazy. And because I did have mental illness, that has been the go-to for everyone mm-hmm. who's ever abused me. They always just say, oh, you're imagining it because you're crazy or you're just too sensitive. And I am very sensitive. And this this whole upbringing did impact me more than it did my sister in some ways. 
to be honest, it, it still really impacted her, but it manifested in different ways. So yes, I, I do feel these things quite intensely, but what I'm feeling is, is still real. When I am being picked on by someone, it's not that I'm being sensitive. It's, it's that I'm very, very perceptive. So I, I notice things like, for example, when you're sitting at your desk and someone stands over you, I notice that as a dominant gesture. Or if someone walks into a room and says hello to everyone except you, they're little things and I just pick up on them. Oh, I just want to tell you one more little story. No um, for years, I felt really guilty about cutting him out of my life. I didn't talk to him for seven years and I, I always felt bad about it because he'd often call me drunk and say how lonely he was and how sad he was. And so I, I kind of felt bad and he seemed to clean up his act a little bit because in the past couple of years, he's, he's done all right. You know, he's got a good job and he's remarried. When I talked to him on the phone, he sounded very lucid. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll talk with him again. But I, the way I saw it in my mind was kind of like Hannibal Lecter and Clarice. <laughs> I felt like I knew exactly who I was dealing with, that I would interact with him on my terms, knowing what he was about and what he might do. I kind of said to him, look, if you ever pull anything on me again in terms of being mean or abusive, I will hang up on you and I will never speak to you again. And he said, sure, sure, of course, of course. No, no, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to do that again. So we started hanging out sometimes. And again, he seemed really lucid. He would hold normal conversations and still seemed very, you know, like a great big man child. But otherwise, he didn't seem malicious. So one day I was having a conversation with him on the phone. And it was just a, you know, just an ordinary conversation. But somehow, his his new wife in the background seemed to, to hear what we were saying. And seemed to think that we were talking about her. Long story short, I won't go into all of it, but she en she ended up sending me about three emails, thousands and thousands of words, just absolutely ripping me to bits. Extremely insulting stuff. Very, very, very personal, um, saying all sorts of things about me, that I was stalking her and that I was crazy and that I had, and she had this idea in her head that everything that had happened in my childhood didn't happen. And that me and my sister and my mum were all abusive to my father. So she was writing these long, awful, criti critical personal emails to me. And I just sent a short one line back and said, hey, how about you give me a call? Seems like there's been a misunderstanding. Why don't you call me and we'll talk about it? She didn't do that. She just kept emailing me. After she sent one of the emails, my dad called me. And he had that eerie calm in his voice again. And I said... Dad, you know what happened. You know that we weren't talking about her and that this is a complete misunderstanding. Can you explain it to her, please? He was like, oh, okay, sure, yeah, yeah. Again, he wasn't saying much. It's almost like he was calling me to hear, to witness the aftermath. So then she sent me another email and he called me straight after and he said, did you see the latest email? And I was very, very upset. I was so upset by these emails. They were so awful. And I was like, why is this happening? And I realized that he had been saying things about me to her. The, the long story short is it's almost like she was the plug-in baby. He wound her up and watched her go because he knew that she could, he couldn't abuse me anymore because he knew that I wouldn't let him. So the best way to hurt me was to get his wife uh, to, to do just it. unleash on me. And, it, and it's so weird because you would think, I mean, me and you are trying to find the logic and the reason here. And I would think if, 
if your father doesn't like you, why would he want to interact with you? And then you start to understand the, the level of malice, the level of just wanting to hurt people and, 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 mm-hmm. and see it himself. And, and in order to do that, you have to interact. You have to draw them in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's literally bored. He does it when he's bored. And if he's not doing it to us, he's doing it to someone else. So we kind of know what's going on with him from afar. And when there's not a lot of drama in his life, we know that he's about to contact us. And he does. He sent a parcel to my sister recently, which was an old photo album. And on the photo album, he'd put my mum's new address. Now, my mum has purposefully made herself, you know, she's kept her phone number and her address private. She's gone invisible, um, yeah. <laughs> yes. And he still got, he got her, her address, which is actually in a different city now, and he just sent it to my sister. So that was just his little way of saying, I still know where she lives. So it's a game. It's all a game. <laughs> Do you ever get people that are like, well, why don't you talk to your dad anymore? I'm sure you could work things out. Do you ever get the people that wonder why you don't interact with your family? Oh, boy, do I ever. And me and my sister joke about that. If you want to make us really mad really fast, say say to us, he can't be that bad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've, I've had people say that to me on Father's Day. Oh, what, what are you doing with your father on Father's Day? And I said, oh, nothing. You know, I'm, I say I'm estranged from my father. And they say, oh, why? He can't be that bad. And they make me feel guilty. Yeah. And I just stop them and I go, look, it's, it's a long story, which you don't know. So let's just assume that you and I are different <laughs> and yeah. you have a relationship with your father and I don't. So trust me, there's good reason. Yeah, it's, it's almost like if you actually did tell them, they would want to argue with you about it. They'd want to try to tell you that, oh, you, you can make amends. Everything's fine. <laughs> oh, wow. You know what people do? If I tell them my life story, they go, whoa, 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 I don't want to hear this. Why are you telling me all this? It's so awful. It's so depressing. And it's it's making me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I just think, I'm sorry, but this started when I was 11 and it's been going on most of my life. It's kind of all I know. At the same time, me and my sister, our coping mechanism is actually to joke about things. And yeah. I haven't been joking with you, but often when we talk about him, we're actually laughing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's so ridiculous. I mean, when you yeah. really think about him sitting there staring, like I, I imagine, you know, Al Pacino and Scarface when he's having his mental breakdown and is about to like kill his sister and his friend. Like I, that's what I'm imagining when you're talking about your father sitting there, not not saying anything. I just, <laughs> just... You're right. It is so funny because have you seen that scene in Taxi Driver when he's talking to the mirror? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my dad. He he did me. that. <laughs> The other one is uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Yeah. He's very much like that. Like he's running around the house laughing. Then he's turning around and talking to thin air. Yes. All, all work and no play makes Jack a doll boy. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's sad and, and true. And my wife, her she's very close with her family and her parents. And she moved out to... Kansas City to be with me where my family is and she's like oh I want to meet your mom and I was like nah you kind of don't <laughs> she goes no I do and um after her first interaction with my mom she was in tears and I was wow and I was just like yep yeah, that's sorry like that's that's my family and sorry you you won't 
I won't allow you to be close to them <laughs> because I don't want you to get hurt. <laughs> it's 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 a sad state of affairs. Like, let's hang out with your mom and your dad. They're they're much nicer and you know supportive. Um, yeah, that's right. You know, they say you can't choose your family, but you can, yeah. and <laughs> you can choose to not interact with some. And if you're like, sounds like you've got um good uh, in laws. My husband's family are amazing, uh-huh. so they're my new family. Yeah. So, and you'll whether you're related to them or not, you know, you encounter people in your life who can become your family. Yeah, exactly. I, I if nothing else, I, I want people to understand that. And when somebody says that they don't speak to their family, there's a reason because <laughs> nobody just stops speaking to their family for nothing. Normally, not a oh, he didn't pass the potatoes fast enough kind of scenario. It's usually something much deeper rooted that their little 15-second blurb isn't going to solve. And For a while, I would hang out with my friends and not my family. And for Thanksgiving, we would have what we call Friendsgiving. And so I would only hang out with my friends. And it was typically friends that didn't get along with their families either. So we would have a nice holiday together <laughs> um, without our families because you know you're hanging out or being around people that you love and care care about and care about you and it's uh, much to me it's much healthier than forcing yourself to you know through some obligation to be around your family that isn't supportive right absolutely when people are abusive to you the best thing you can do is walk away you don't need to retaliate you don't need to get even. I like to think of it as, um, you know, it's like a tend your own garden. You put up a fence, you have a lovely garden, you look after it. Everyone else can do what they like. They just can't come on your property without you saying that's okay. And, you know, we all realize one day that I'm an adult. I don't have to sit here any longer. <laughs> I can get up and leave. <laughs> I don't have to put up with this shit. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it took me a long time to learn that lesson because – it was only recently when things came to a head at work that I, I went to someone about it and said, this person's abusing me. Yeah. It was very difficult to have myself be believed, but the important part is that you're trying and that you're asserting yourself. Yeah. And if they aren't going to address it, then you can move on. It sucks because, you know, you, you shouldn't have to be the one that leaves, but you know, you have to weigh that out, you know, what's, what's healthier for me, what's more, what, what's more conducive to my environment and my health. And sometimes the victim has to move on to get away from the attacker. Definitely. Especially if it's the kind of workplace where they, they're not recognizing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of research out there to show the negative effects on a business from toxicity, mm-hmm. um, staff turnover, loss in productivity, the list goes on, and yet some organizations still fail to recognize it. There's always the efficiency expert that's all about the bottom line, and it's the hard dollars, not the soft dollars that they count. So mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't care if, it's, if you quit and they have to hire a new person tomorrow. You know, they, they just see you as that cog in the wheel, and uh, they don't realize that they are a cog in the wheel themselves, and... The better the wheel spins, the the more money they're going to make. Mm-hmm. When I left my job, it was it was a little bittersweet because I I liked my job very much. I I liked my company, 
my manager who was the asshole actually left the company two months before I was planning on leaving. Mm. But I'd already made plans, got my life to the point where I was leaving the job. So it didn't matter that he was no longer there. I was like, I'm, I'm leaving regardless because uh, the damage has been done. <laughs> There's no continuing this you know, relationship. And uh, my new boss, who was very nice, had a hard time understanding he was like well if he was the problem then why are you leaving and i'm like because there's no coming back from that i agree also sometimes these people come into your life almost like a catalyst mm-hmm. and they're there to teach you something or they are there to push you mm-hmm. and push you up because uh, how do they say these people play in the dirt and if you play in the dirt you get dirty <laughs> so your people like you and i are better off you know moving up out of the dirt yeah. into something better I've gone almost 11 months now without my day job doing my podcast. So it was a blessing in disguise, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, because it's an awesome podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever think that what happened to you as a child is not... Everyone has this weird pissing match about, oh, my childhood was worse or, oh, or your childhood was worse. You know, we're not here to compare the trauma we've endured there's no prize to be won. <laughs> there's everyone's experience is their own. What you just told me was just completely ridiculous and horrifying all at the same time. And I, I don't even, I couldn't even, I didn't even think that was possible. <laughs> so <laughs> that's you know. the perfect description. <laughs> and I'm glad you're laughing about it. Cause that's how I deal with my, my bullshit is I, I just joke about it. People think that, I have a very morbid, dark sense of humor, and it's like, well, that's how I deal, and that's how most people deal. It's that's the norm. <laughs> so. Oh, definitely, because if you don't laugh, you'll cry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many things that I wanted to say when you were saying them, but I didn't want to cut you off. <laughs> like, I oh, say, sorry, yeah, I ramble. <laughs> no, no, because you weren't rambling. You had a very linear thought, and I wanted you to complete it. I didn't want to interrupt you at all. But, you know, when you were talking about his new wife or girlfriend, I'm like, yeah, he's already gotten to her. Your mother figured it out and she took off and she tried to cut off ties with him. And and why would he seek her out? You know, what, well, what's the point of that? I, if somebody doesn't care for me and my company or my my person, I'm going to steer clear of them. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't like me. I don't want to be any part of their life either. So it's just crazy to me that he's so crazy that he would seek her out, find her address. Yeah. He's, um, he said to me a few years ago, um, when he opened up, he opened up to me a lot because sometimes he thought that I was on his side. He's the kind of person where if you wrong him, he will get you back and he will wait years if necessary. Now, if that sounds eerily familiar, I don't know if you've heard episode one, I think, of Sword and Scale, where Mike interviews that doctor who himself has discovered that he has the physiological traits in his brain of a psychopath. Mm -hmm. And he says that one of the things that he thinks makes him psychopathic is that he has that deep need for revenge, where if you wrong him, he he will get even and he'll get you back and he will wait years if necessary. I think the thing with my dad and my mum is that, you know, she she left him. He feels like he needs to get her back for that. 
but uh, luckily he's he's not in my life at the moment. Um, I've always noticed with these kinds of people that if you it's like a dance, if you don't dance with them, eventually they'll they'll stop dancing. When he tries to contact me, I find that if I don't respond, he eventually tires of it. I've blocked his email and I've blocked his wife's email and I've blocked I've put up a, a Gmail filter so that it will screen any emails with certain keywords. Yeah, so luckily I haven't heard from him in about a year. You know, you, you say you don't dance and then he'll stop dancing. He, he finds somebody else to dance with. Oh yeah, he will. He'll find someone else. <laughs> thank you, Tessie and Nicole, for coming on. As always, thank you all for listening. I'm in the process of setting up a Patreon for the Peripheral Podcast. If you find it in your heart to donate to me it would be wonderful most people who know me know that i don't like to ask for money even ask for help but i want to keep this podcast ad free i want to keep this podcast smooth i don't want to interrupt the flow so we'll see what we can do and i'm going to refrain from getting any advertisers for now So check out the Peripheral Podcast on Patreon, and you'll see my lovely face with my logo. Thank you. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.